Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. Hey, today we are going to continue in week number three of this six-week teaching series we're doing on the Church of Ephesus. And as Missy said, if for whatever reason you're gone this summer, you're on vacation, or you've got something and you can't be here, you can always join us for Church Online. So we live stream this. It goes to live.newlifekc.com. It also goes to our Facebook page if you like us there so you can tune in and you say, yeah, but I'm on vacation and I'm sleeping through on that Sunday. It's okay. We record them. So you you can watch them back at your own convenience. You can watch the video, you can listen to it, subscribe to the podcast, all of that's available to you. So this past week, I came across a story about Alexander the Great. And when your name's Alexander and you feel like you're great, you lean into stories like that. So Alexander the Great, as many of you guys know, he kind of conquered the known world. And sometimes people are like, well, why isn't Alexander the Great in the Bible? Well, interestingly, he's not in the Bible because he lived and died in a time frame in which the Bible wasn't really recording what was going on in the world. It was in between the Old Testament and the New Testament that he conquered the entire world and it actually set the stage for Rome to come in to be the next great world power. So anyway, Alexander the Great, here's the story. He came upon one of his guards sleeping at his post at night. Alexander woke up the man, and as you can imagine, the man, this young soldier, was petrified. He knew that the consequences for sleeping at his post was immediate death. Alexander the Great angrily looked down at the sleeping guy and says, Soldier, what's your name? The, the terrified young man stuttered in, in fear. He, he finally said, Alexander, sir, my, my name is Alexander. I was named after you. Well, the man's response threw the great commander off his game. He wasn't sure what to do. And so seconds later, Alexander the Great shouted into the darkness as he walked away, Soldier, either change your conduct or change your name. And I've been thinking about this, and I wonder if Jesus Christ ever looks down from heaven at us who, who have taken on his name, right? We're, we're little Christites. We're, we're Christians. We've taken on the name of Christ. And I wonder if he ever looks down from heaven and looks at us who are wearing his name and looks at our lifestyle, looks at the choices that we make on a daily basis. And I just wonder if he ever feels like Alexander the Great and thinks to himself, gosh, either change your name, Christians, change your conduct, or change your name. I don't know if you have any friends like I do who, who call themselves a Christian, but then like nothing in their life looks a thing like Jesus. It's like a label that they wear, but it doesn't necessarily carry any meaning. And, and, and the problem is, is that so often, I, 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 as a pastor, I get these books and I get these articles that are sent to me, and you have these people that always want to give polls to people. They want to find out what people believe. How do they think? In 21st century America, how, how do people feel about Christians? So some of my favorites are, how do, how do people who are outside the church perceive people who are inside the church? And so you get all sorts of stuff. You know, like the, the church people are judgmental, or they're anti-homosexual, or uh, all they care about is getting me saved or converted. But the one thing that comes up on every list, that every time they pull people, 
that Christians are seen as is Christians are seen as hypocrites. They're seen as people who say one thing, but then do something different. And, and I think the problem is, is that people don't see lifestyle differences between those who've taken on the name of Jesus and those who don't. And so for me as a pastor, as a church leader, like as a person who has influence in a, a spiritual manner, I want to help people to be authentic. I want you to be real and genuine. I want you to put on a game. I want you to put on a show. I don't want your pretense. I don't want none of that. I want you to be the real deal. And I think part of that begins with being honest with yourself. And so for me, I want you to be all in, like 100%. Like we're jumping into the deep end. We're not easing it. Like let's be all in. Or I want you to be out. Get out. Don't play. Don't be halfway in. Don't have one foot in, one foot out. No, no, no. Get in or get out. And I think that Jesus has the same sentiment. And he says this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. He says this to a church. He says, I know all the things that you do and that you're neither hot, you're not all for me, nor cold. (laughs) I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Uh, The literal term here is vomit. Like when we live a life that's not hot or cold, it's just kind of this middle hypocritical ground. I'm wearing the label, but I'm not really living it. It makes Jesus sick to his stomach. We're entering summer. I don't know if you've had this happen yet, but you had like that water bottle that you put in your car because you're going to be smart and you're going to hydrate. You weren't going to find yourself dehydrated. And so you went into the store and you came out of the store and you thought to yourself, you know what? I should have myself a drink of water. It'd be really good for me. But what you didn't know was that the sun is like lava and it turned your water into this hot canister of boiling nastiness. And so you grab it not knowing. And luckily, if you're lucky, you're not driving. If you are driving... You are not a safe driver because you crack that lid and as that first hits your mouth, you guys, I don't know if you know this, where like the water gets hot at the top, but it's still kind of cool on the bottom. And so you first get the hot, but then that cold hits you and then you're just like, ah, that's what we feel like to Jesus. We want to spit. We want to get it out. This is not good. This is not great. This is not what we should be. And so uh, when I first got into youth ministry, uh, there was a a book and, and these conferences that I was going to, I was wanting to learn, I was wanting to be good uh, as a youth pastor. And so there were some sociologists back in 2005 that coined a term that described how young people were approaching God. And of course, those young people are now adults and parents and everything else. And so I think that this still remains true. And so they said, how do people view God today? Like they're not necessarily looking at the Bible and saying, here's what the Bible says that God is and how he loves and how he cares for us. How are they approaching God? And so they came up with this term and it was called an MTD Christian. And, and the MTD stood for Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. And you're like, whoa, where are we going today, Pastor Alex? This is a little heavy. I'll break it down as easy as I can and keep it as simple as I can. The idea was that people were beginning to see God as this deism. They weren't seeing him as a personal God. Deists believed that God created the world and then he took off. It was like he took the world and he spun it like a top and then he's absent. And we're down on the top living our life absent and far away. So the idea is that there's this absent creator, but somehow or another he created us to be kind of moralistic. Like he wants us to be good. God wants us to be good. So we should be good to one another. Now, the definition of good is dependent on who you are. It's like I was talking to Serena and she took an ethics class and like luckily she had a biblical ethics class, but Rachel didn't. It was just ethics. Well, what do we base right and wrong on? 
I don't know. Maybe we should vote. <laughs> so when we talk about moralistic, the idea was that they're approaching God, but without any standard, and we should be good, so just be tolerant and be kind to everybody. But therapeutic means not only should you be good, but you should feel good. You should be happy. In fact, God wants you to be happy. And so this idea of how young people were approaching God was not with any standard. God's absent. He's far away. In fact, he's kind of like AAA insurance. This is how they would approach God. You don't need to know the tow truck driver's name. You just need the tow truck driver to help you when you're broken down on the side of the road, kind of like AAA insurance. And this is how they would approach God. You don't know him. You don't need to, but you can call on him when you're broken down and he'll come and get you going again. And so the most important thing, according to an MTD Christian, is to be good and nice and tolerant. And if you are those things, God will ultimately receive you into heaven. But here's the problem. That's not biblical or orthodox Christianity. That's not what being a Christian is. That's taking God's name and making it something else. And I think he would look down from heaven and say, hey, change your conduct or change your name, because that's not what this is about. And I think that today we have people who are confused about what does it really mean to be a Christian? In 21st century America, with TikTok and social media and everything else in our world, with politics being unusual, with gas prices being weird, luckily egg prices are coming down, what in the world? How do I live as a Christian in my world today? Like, what does this look like? And just as we have questions and there's confusion about it, in 21st century America, in 1st century Ephesus in Asia Minor, there was questions and confusion about what it meant to be a Christian. Now, for them, they weren't struggling with this moralistic, therapeutic God. No, what they were struggling with was polytheism. There were so many gods. Everybody had a God. Everybody was worshiping whatever they wanted to worship, however they wanted to worship. And so this claim to be a follower of Jesus meant that you're denying all these other gods and you're just saying that there's one God. That was part of the challenge that they had. And the people in Ephesus were in a very pagan culture. In fact, people were traveling to Ephesus, why would they go there? Well, because they had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They had this massive temple, pagan temple, to the god of Artemis or Diana. And so people were traveling all over to come and see this place. So it was a religious culture. It was a religious context. But people there were trying to follow Jesus. They were putting their faith and confidence in Jesus and realized this is before the Bible. It's not like they could pull out pages and say, this is what we believe. So how were they functioning. Well, luckily there was a church leader at that time that God was using to help them to know what it really meant to be a Christian. And so there's this guy by the name of Paul who wrote them in Ephesus this letter that said, let me help you know what it really means to be a Christian. And in fact, today we believe that that letter he wrote was inspired by God and we include it in our holy scriptures. And so today we're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, and see what it is that Paul had to say to the church of Ephesus about what it really meant to be a Christian, because I think that's going to inform us on what it really means to be a Christian today. And so I'm excited to look at this and what it means to step over the line of faith and embrace Jesus as King. So this morning we're going to be talking about this idea of salvation. You probably heard that word if you grew up in church. We're going to try to answer these questions. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be born again Really, what does it mean to be a Christian? So Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to take a look at the first 10 verses today and then try to pull some application from this. Are you guys ready? Yes. All right. Ephesians chapter 2, reading from the New American Standard today, verse 1 says, 
And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So again, and you, this is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. Is he writing to people who are believers or non-believers? He's writing to believers. He's writing to people who believe in God. That's why they're in the church, right? So in case you're like non-believers, it's okay. There's grace and peace. My wife answered the question wrong on the front row. <laughs> grace and peace. <laughs> So he is writing to, I can't, I can't believe that. It's so funny. You spoke a couple weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> you're, you're trying to participate. It was great. <laughs> so, so we're writing to believers. These are Christians. These are people who stepped over the line of faith. They're embracing Jesus, right? And so he's saying, you who are Christians, you who have embraced Jesus, you who have turned your back on all these other gods, you were dead in your trespasses and transgressions, like in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. That's past tense. Like, in other words, like you are following Jesus now, but there was a time before you followed Jesus in which you were dead in these trespasses and sins. Uh, The word trespasses is kind of interesting. Um, A lot of times in our world, we might see a sign that says no trespassing. The idea is that we are not to cross over that line. And when we do, we are in violation of going somewhere that we shouldn't. And in the same way, all of us are guilty of crossing the line when it comes to our relationship with God. We've all gone where we shouldn't go. And then sins, sins kind of this term that often means this idea of like an archer who's shooting uh, an arrow at a target and he misses the target. To miss the target is to sin which means he's failed. So we're all dead in this idea that we've all crossed the line and we've all failed in trying to do what is right. We can't do it. We're a failure and we uh, are guilty of being a rebel. We're, we're going where we shouldn't go. There's these two ideas communicated of, of I'm a rebel and I'm failed. And so in this, there's this question about what does it mean to be, to be dead, right? Um, we read in Luke 15, 24, we talked about the prodigal son uh, last month. And when the son returns, his father says, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's when they began to celebrate. See, the cool thing that we're going to talk about here is that God loves to take things that are dead and bring them back to life. Like he doesn't take things that are good and make them better. He doesn't take you and just try to clean you up. No, no, no. You are dead and he's making you alive. He's doing what no one else can do. He is the breath of life. He's breathing life into things that were once dead. But here's the problem. You get into a lot of theological debates and you get into a lot of controversies on what does it mean to be dead? You were dead. Okay, well, but what does that mean? And the questions that really people are trying to answer here is in in what manner and to what extent is a person dead before conversion? Okay, so we get that I was dead, but like, what does that mean? And how I answer this, in what manner and to what extent is a person dead before conversion, that's going to influence how I answer this next question. It's going to inform how I answer the question of what is the order of salvation? How do I move from death to life? What does that process look like? So to make this as simple as possible, there's really just two primary camps. Camp A says that the order of salvation is that you first are to believe and then you will be born again. Okay? Camp A. I believe and then God does the transforming work of salvation in my life. Okay? Camp B. They say 
you are dead, you can't believe, God first must make you born again, and then second, you can believe. Okay? Two camps. The order's just flipped. You all with me? Now, some of you are like, which is it? Now, Missy, don't answer. (laughs) Can a dead person believe? That's the question. Can a dead person just believe, or does God have to do a work in their life to awaken them to believe. And so as we get into this, we're touching on all sorts of things. And depending on your church background and where you grew up, you know, terms of depravity and, and uh, different limited atonement, all of these things are going to be in here. And so I, I just want to just try to keep it as clean as we can here. I believe that to say an unredeemed man is exactly like a dead body in every way is taking this analogy and word picture too far. See, if a dead man can't believe, well, then a dead man can't sin either. If he's dead, he's dead, right? So then, but wait a second. We know that sinful people, well, they're dead, but they do sin. So I have a hard time saying that this one phrase means that we're going to have to take all of belief off of the table, that they're completely unregenerate and that they've never turned to God. Well, wait a second. They are still active. They're not just a dead body doing absolutely nothing. They're still making choices. They still have a free will. They're still doing things. Like, and so we see this throughout Scripture. Even with the prodigal son, he was dead, but now he's alive. You know, when he was dead, he was doing all sorts of stuff. He was doing all sorts of stuff he shouldn't have done. And when he made the choice to return home, he came to life. In my high, when when my sister was in high school, she had a friend, um, and her brother. So my sister's high school friend's brother had this crazy accident. It was a really sad story. He's doing something he shouldn't have done, and uh, ended up falling through the skylight of this building. And uh, and the doctors said that he was brain dead. Um, the parents, however, didn't want to give up any type of hope, and so um, they had him transported to their home in which he lived in their basement um, on machines that were keeping his body alive. And so in, in one sense, you could say that he, he was alive, but in a very real sense, he was also very dead. I think that when it comes to this idea that someone is dead before they came to Christ, I don't think it's just kind of an all-or-nothing thing. Um, I believe that all of us were born dead spiritually. Okay? When we were born, we were born dead spiritually. Y- yeah, we looked very much alive physically, but spiritually, our life and our connection to God, as far as that was concerned, that was dead. Um, I've got three pastor's kids living in my house. They're my sons. And you know what I found out about all three of them? They're all liars. And I don't know what happened, because I never taught them how to lie, and Missy didn't teach them how to lie, but every one of those little deceivers has deceived us. It says something they shouldn't have said. I think the latest was one of the kids got angry and put a mark, like, took a marker to the wall. What are you doing? You little sinners. They were just like, I got three of them. Why? Why are they like that? Because they were born dead spiritually. They are not connected to God. 
There is not life inside of them that has been redeemed. They are just little sinners. Now, there's going to be a moment in time in which I hope that they will make the choice to step over the line of faith and allow God to redeem their soul. But yet, they have not done that, and so we continue to pray. So a question that sometimes comes up is, like, really, is, is, is a prior work of God necessary before a person can believe? And, and I do believe that there is a prior work of God necessary before a person can believe. I just don't believe that that prior work is being born again and experiencing salvation. See, I believe that the prior work of God is something that he's doing with all mankind. See, I don't believe that God is exclusive. I believe God is inclusive. I believe that God wants everyone to come to know him, not just a select few. I believe that God died on the cross for everyone's sins. And my reason for believing this is based on Scripture. And so I'm just going to fire through four of these. John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says that if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, no matter who you are, whoever chooses to believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteous and godly in this present age. And then 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I don't believe that I'm special, that God selected me and predestined me just to go to heaven and I'm just lucky he didn't predestine me for hell. No, I believe that he has provided a gift of grace. None of us deserve it. None of us are worthy of it. It's available to me, but I have to receive it. The illustration I used to use in youth ministry was picture a string from heaven coming down and there's a present box in front of every person. And as we go through life, there is this free gift available to us. It is God's salvation. All we have to do is open the gift and believe, and we can receive it. But most of us go through our life knocking that box out of the way, trying to stay out of its way. I don't want to change. I don't want to recognize that there's a God, because that means that I'm his, and I have to change how I live. So I believe that God is drawing all men unto himself. And he is inviting them to step over the line of faith. And when they choose to believe by an act of their free will that they say, I am no longer going to live for myself. God, I surrender to you. In that moment, I believe that they are transformed. They are made new. They come alive spiritually. The thing that was born dead now is awakened to them and they have relationship with God the Father. And as they now have this new connection, there is a new power in them. It's God. God sends his Holy Spirit to indwell them, and they now begin to live a new life. And welcome to the name of our church. New life. Community church. We are to be a community of people who have experienced the new life that God has. And it's not that we once experienced it. No, no, no. I'm still experiencing it. I accepted the Lord in 1994. And I'm still being changed today. I'm not a slow learner. I'm just human. <laughs> I'm in process. I'm in progress. I'm moving in that direction. So back to our verse, Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, past tense. You've missed the mark. You've been a rebel. You stepped over the line. Verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Could it be Satan? <laughs> Verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Womp womp. It's kind of sad. But here's the deal. People don't like this, but we are by nature deserving of wrath. Because we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, because we were born spiritually dead, we are disconnected from God. We're not on the right side. We're not on the right team. And you say, well, that seems like a mean God. No, that God doesn't want you to be on that team. That's why he sent Jesus. There's a way for you not to be on that team. Uh, in the New Bible Commentary, it says this. It says, those bound in sin are doomed to death and so already belong to its realm. The very thing they think of as life is but a foretaste of death because it is without God. I always thought that Jesus' hardest uh, job that he had on earth, he came to give people life, but everybody believed they already had life. How do you convince somebody that they don't have life? That's a hard thing because Jesus came to give them life and life more abundantly. See, until you recognize that you're dead, you can never embrace new life. So verse one, it tells us our status. We are dead. Verses two and three kind of tell us the lifestyle that follows of being a dead person, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, satisfying what we want. But then something happens in verse four, and Paul shifts gears with two powerful words, but God. Oh, these are cool words. If you got a Bible, like I would circle it, you highlight it. Like, but God. I kept asking my wife, I was like, isn't there a song that says, but God? And then my kids, who are little sinners, are like, <laughs> what'd you say, daddy? <laughs> but God. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How am I saved? By grace. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the un sorry, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I, I love verse six. In another translation, it says that together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens. Together with Christ Jesus. See, when we make that choice and act of faith, he meets us here and we no longer walk through life alone. See, Jesus promised, he said, listen, I will be with you forever, even to the end of the age. Man, we don't have to do life alone. I think that's the hardest, scariest thing is trying to do it in your own power day in and day out. Man, the faith and confidence I have as a Christian, man, I don't have to face the day alone. Man, it looks scary outside, doesn't it? Did you ever watch the news? Oh my goodness, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't know what's going on. I don't have to worry. I'm together with Christ. It's all gonna be good. What are you supposed to do? I'm not supposed to worry about all that. Well, but what if they get elected? I don't really care. One day, Jesus is coming back and he's going to take the throne. He's the king of kings. He's the president of president. It's going to be really good. I'm on his team. But what if it doesn't happen while you're alive? Well, okay. 
I'll be back later. <laughs> so I love, I love what Paul's doing here. And, and sometimes when we read the Bible, we don't notice this, but like he's actually doing a contrast. In the first three verses, compared to the next three verses. He's talking about what the old life is, and he's talking about this new life. There's the old humanity and the new humanity. And we'll just put this up on the screen here. It says that we were dead, that's our old life, but now we are alive. It says that we were enslaved, but now we're enthroned. What? We went from a slave to, wow, that's crazy. We were objects of wrath, now we are objects of grace. We walked among disobedient, but now we have fellowship with Christ. We were under Satan's domain, and now we are in union with Christ. Man, this is radical change. We are new. We are being made new. We have a new way of living. And what God's trying to do to establish his kingdom on earth begins with bringing individuals into new life. He is building a new humanity that honors him, that actually lives what his original intention was for Adam in the Garden of Eden. He is restoring us back to his original intent. Verse 7 says, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's four key terms in these verses here. The first one is kindness. This is God's tender, loving action. He has been kind to you. I know some of your stories. He's been kind to you. He's been better to you than you deserve. He's been kind. And it is by grace. What is this grace? This is one of Paul's favorite terms. He uses it over a hundred times in the letters he writes to the church. Grace. That's God's free favor toward ill-deserving people. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You guys remember Oprah Winfrey's? You get a car, you get a car, you get a car. That's God's grace. I did nothing to deserve it. And then faith. Faith is this idea, it's the instrument that brings us empty-handed to God. Faith doesn't, I don't have anything to show. It's not a work-based thing. Faith is is how I'm able to receive anything from God. And this idea of being saved, first by grace that you've been saved through faith, this saving is equated with new life, forgiveness of sins, deliverance from everything described in verses one through three. I'm no longer dead. I'm no longer having to give in to the desires of my flesh. I'm no longer having to live according to the prince of the air. I, I have a new life. And verse 10 says, in our final verse, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I'm so glad that God goes before me and prepares the way. And notice this. And this is something I hadn't thought about because, yeah, of course, we're all God's workmanship. He loves us. He created us. He's a good God. But no, no, no. We're talking about like we are now his workmanship. Not just your being, not just your physical being. No, no, no. You are a workmanship. In other words, I was this person that was against God. I was dead spiritually. I'm living a life in which I'm only pleasing myself. I'm, 
I'm deserving of hell. And, and, and it's not as though he just kind of plucked me up as this messy, dirty thing and said, all right, you don't have to have that punishment. I mean, that's part of redemption, that we've been saved from the consequences of being spiritually removed from God. Yes, that's true. But here's the thing. He doesn't leave us like that. He doesn't leave us in this gunky, nasty thing. See, the beautiful thing about new life in Christ is that, yes, he has saved us from impending problems, but now he is forming us, and we are a workmanship that he is, he is transforming us and making us completely new. I'm not just the same old person I was going that way. No, 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 I'm a whole new person. I'm fairly convinced that dead people are really comfortable in coffins. I mean, it's a cushy in there. It's dark. They can be at peace. But you know what? If you come alive inside of a coffin, you are not comfortable. <laughs> and if you are, I don't know if you really came alive. When you realize, i got to get out of here. I can't stay here no more. That is when we experience new life in Christ. I can't continue to live the old lifestyle, the things that were comfortable and at peace and made me happy. No, they don't work no more. I got something new going on inside of me. I have got to get out. I've got to change. I've got to live a new life. And God's Holy Spirit allows us to do that and forms us and creates us and makes us a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. I think that the tragedy of the church world today is that people have been called to belief but not to obedience. And there is no good works without obedience to Christ. And just to believe isn't enough. You can't just open your eyes and be like the living dead and stay in the coffin. No, you've got to change. You have to say there's a new way of living. I'm not okay living the way I was anymore. See, the good news is that God doesn't want us to be lost forever. He wants to save us from that destruction and make us into his masterpiece. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, obedience is a part of, of how believers, um, how do I say that? Because the Old Testament, New Testament, obedience on the part of believers stands as the supreme test of faith in God. Do you really believe in God? The test of that is whether or not you obey him. If you don't pass the test of obedience, then you probably aren't trusting him. Hey, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac up on that mountain. Okay, really, God? Yeah, this is a test of obedience to see where your trust lies. You and I, the question of whether we truly trust God is found in whether we would obey him. And so for me, when someone claims to believe in God but doesn't walk in obedience, I question their salvation. You say, well, that's kind of cruel, Pastor Alex. You shouldn't be judgy like that. No, no, no. I love them enough. Because I believe that people who believe that they're saved and aren't are in the scariest place. They think they're all right. They think everything's okay. I don't want them to be surprised when they meet Jesus. I want them to be excited and confident when they meet Jesus. Belief without obedience isn't a thing. Belief must be accompanied with obedience. And I think we put it this way, true salvation equals life change. Have you really been saved? Has God really done a work in your heart? You say you believe, great. If you believe, now he's going to do a work in your heart. If there's not evidence of that work in your heart, I don't know if you really believed. I don't know if you really trusted. I don't know if you really stepped over the line of faith. Maybe you intellectually ascended to some belief system. But no, we're talking about a full trust of your life in which you've moved from death to life. When you move from death to life, your life changes. It's no longer the same. 
My dad used to use this illustration about there being a difference between having what he would call a spiritual awakening and having a conversion experience in which you truly experience new life. And in his illustration, he always had this person that was on a train. And the train's rolling down the tracks. And the train's actually headed toward hell, but they don't know that. But while they're on the train, they happen to look out the window and they see a sign that says that they're on the train to hell. <gasps> oh no, I'm on the train to hell. I didn't know I was on the train to hell. I don't want to be on the train to hell. I can't believe I'm on the train to hell. My dad would then ask, are they still on the train to hell? Yep. Just because you know you're going that direction doesn't mean anything has changed. Just because you had this spiritual awakening and here's a truth, oh no. Maybe you even cried when you saw it. Oh, no. Unless you get off of the train and get on a different train, going to a different destination, you're still on the train. There's a difference between having an awakening of spiritual truth and actually having a transformation of your life. And what God is interested in is the spiritual awakening leading to the moment of decision, getting off of the train, changing my direction, and moving in a new moving in the direction that he would want. We have to change trains. And you say, well, I don't, I mean, I, I like to think that I have changed trains. Well, listen, if you don't know if you've changed trains, you ain't changed trains. You might have just fallen asleep on that train and woke up and thought you're somewhere else. No, you're still going the same way. It is going to be known by you. It is going to be known by God and it's going to be known by the people in your life that you've changed trains. The Bible talks about salvation being, being like a, a physical birth. I was born on May 20th. It happened at a specific time. The Bible talks about salvation being like a wedding. I was married on July 10th. I can tell you exactly when it happened. If you don't know when you change trains, did you change trains? And the scariest thing for me would be for me to just eh, act like we're all good when maybe you're not. That would be tragic. So, only you know. I mean, God knows. People around you, you can fool us all day long. But have you gone from death to life? Have you not just believed just with words and gone through maybe some religious motions, but have you actually changed? And if there's no life change, you probably didn't fully trust him. So today, I want to give you an opportunity to be a part of God's new humanity, to go from death to life. It's the most exciting thing that you'll ever do. And it's not just a one-time choice, it's a daily choice. Every day, I, somehow or another, I wake up back in that coffin and I feel comfortable again and I gotta get out. It's like a nightmare, the living dead. <laughs> but I have a new master and he's, he's changing me. He's changing my family. He's changing this church community. Some people don't like it. That's okay. We're going to keep praying for them. But God desires for none to perish, but all to come to repentance. And I 
want the same thing. If you would, would you bow your heads with me? If you're here and you say, you know what, Pastor Alex, I hear you. I've had maybe some spiritual awakenings in my life, but as you've been talking, you know, I find myself questioning whether or not I've actually changed trains because I don't know if I'm really experiencing new power in my life. I don't know if I'm having this new life. I feel like maybe I've just tried to do it all on my own and I've tried to be a better person, but I really haven't experienced this inward change of coming to life in Christ. And I know I maybe should have. Maybe you've grown up in church and you're like, I surely have done that. But if there's any question in you, Listen, allow your pride to disappear right now and be humble. Be humble enough to say, you know what? I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care about my past. I'm not going to hang on to that. You know what? I want to know from this day forward that I'm moving in the direction that God wants. And you say, you know what? I want that new life. If you want that, man, you can have it. It's a choice that you're going to make today, and I believe God's going to meet you right there. The Bible says that if you draw close to God, he will draw close to you. And I believe that you can have an encounter with Jesus today that'll transform your life. But you have to take that first step. He's already been drawing you. He's already been communicating with you. The question now, as the ball is in your court, what are you going to do with it? And so just as a sign of where you're at, and you say, you know what, that's me. I want to actually communicate that to myself. I want to acknowledge it, not just a thought in my head. But yeah, that's me. I want this new life, and I don't know if I really have it. Would you just raise your hand just as a sign to God saying, God, I want your new life. I want to have confidence that I've stepped over that line of faith. I want to have newness and power and strength. God, I thank you that we can look at the Bible to learn about how we're supposed to live. And God, I thank you for those in this room who've raised their hand. Lord, you've seen each hand, you know each heart. And God, I believe that in this moment, God, that you can bring them from death to life. Whether they've had an encounter before or a spiritual awakening, Lord, I pray that today, this would be the beginning of a new life. That June 4th, 2023 would be a changing point in their life. For those of you who've raised your hand, I just want you right now in the quietness of this moment with your heads bowed just to say to God, God, I give you my life. God, I give you my life. I'm not going to hold on to it. I don't want to continue to do life the way that it's been done. God, I need change. God, so I give you my life. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.